stand with me this morning, uh, we'll get ready for our call to worship. And, and we as a church, uh, we desire to be a Christ-centered community intent on proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and sacrificially serving Jesus. If it's your first morning with us, we want to welcome you. Uh, thank you for being here. We do have a, a simple gift that tells you more about us out on the plaza at the Welcome Center. My name is James uh, Holt. I'm one of the associate pastors here and get to work with different ministries, including our outreach in Spanish and men's ministry. Uh, it's a joy to be here this morning with you. Welcome. Uh, we're going to read from Psalm 29 this morning to open our service. In verse 10, the word of the Lord says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Lord, even now we ask your strength that we would be a people for you, a people that bring you glory in this service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, it's a joy to sing with you. We invite you to join us in singing of the joy that's come to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive the King. Let every heart prepare Him room. Heaven and nature sing.
news. Go spread the news of Emmanuel. Joy and peace for the weary heart. Lift up your hands for the King has come. Sing for the standing as we read from God's word, his inspired and authoritative word. We'll read from Ephesians 4, uh, 1 through 6 this morning. The word of the Lord says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. You may be seated. We encourage encourage you to to give uh, as a part of your worship. Give joyfully and sacrificially and prayerfully uh, as we think this morning and, and go before the Lord in prayer. We'll lift up uh, Brittany Libsey, one of our missionaries, uh, who is here close to home. And, and you even have some opportunities to join with Brittany in outreach uh, to the local community here in El Medina. We'll have some gifts that we're giving next Sunday, as well as a, a family party, uh, a great event, a great ch- opportunity to connect with people here locally and, and show them the church, show them the love of Christ, um, and give them hope uh, this Christmas as we, as we speak of our Savior. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you. You are a glorious and a wonderful, a giving, a faithful Father whom we can trust, whom we can depend on. Lord, you made us, you made us a people to be in communion with you, to have fellowship with you, 
Lord, you came to Adam and Eve in the garden. And Lord, after the curse, you came as a baby. You came to be crucified, to be buried, and to rise again so that we could be restored to communion with you, so that we could be reconciled for your glory, so that we could again experience the communion that we were made for. Lord, we thank you for that coming. We thank you for the hope that it brings. And Lord, we thank you that, that because of your faithfulness to your word, because of your faithfully coming and coming again, you will come again. And Lord, point our hope to your coming in glory. Point our hope to that, that coming that will bring judgment, but bring salvation as well. Lord, let us be those who look for your coming, who trust in your coming. Lord, we confess that we need to come to you, but it's not possible for us to come without you having come and you're sending your spirit and giving us life and drawing us to yourself. And Lord, so we even come as a response to your coming and your blessing and your giving life. And we thank you, Father, for that. We thank you uh, that you make dead hearts alive. We thank you that you draw us to yourself, Lord, when we were unworthy. And you call us to then live lives that are worthy, live lives that reflect your coming, your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you. We pray, Lord, even as we think of opportunities um, in the next few weeks, as we will have different people who are interested uh, in coming to church, in being here, Lord, in, in, in different activities that we will have, different parties that may go on, we pray that we would point people towards your coming. Lord, we pray that we would draw their attention to Christ. We pray that our attention would be fixed on you and thankful for you, looking forward to that hope and that people would ask questions, Lord, and we would proclaim and profess our belief that you came and that you are coming, and that there is hope. There is reason for uh, giving thanks. There is reason um, for us to live with joy. Lord, give us joy in all circumstances that reflects your work in us, your life in us, your spirit in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Lord, our sins are many. Um, they rise up over our heads. They're too great to count all of heaven and on earth. Uh, everything could stand in condemnation against us rightly, even our own consciences. So we praise you that um, Jesus Christ um, humbled himself and um, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself um, in taking the form of a servant. Um, he was born and lived and died uh, for sinners like us. And we ask that many um, through the ministry of this church would hear that good news and the gospel, that proclamation, and believe and be saved and experience right relationship with you. And we pray for open ears and hearts to receive your word, even as it's preached now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In a world filled with uh, get-even-vengeance and me-first violence, uh, biblical gentleness is something that uh, stands out as a soothing and calming antidote. Recently released FBI uh, crime data indicate that California's violent crime rate is 31% higher than the national average. And so we need more uh, gentleness and less harshness And Christians need it more than ever with disunity and division running rampant. And uh, Ephesians 4 to the rescue. Ephesians 4, uh, we're looking at verses 1 to 3 over several weeks, willingly walking worthily. Ephesians 4, 1, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience Bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, eager uh, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Last time we focused on Mary's humility. Today, Joseph's gentleness. And I'm going to define it and then illustrate it with Joseph's life. So Ephesians 4, illustrated by Matthew chapter 1. We're in Ephesians. And Ephesians is about God's glorious grace in Christ. He blesses his people with uh, eternal blessings, every spiritual blessing, everyone he has chosen before the foundation of the world, he eternally secures them, and then the command to walk worthy of that calling comes. After God's glorious grace has been highlighted, then the commands are given. And Paul is like this expert marksman. He's just hitting the, the bullseye. He's aiming for the church to see above the spiritual battle that they're in to God's sovereign plan that just conquers depraved disunity. And he wants them to contemplate this breathtaking scope of salvation and, and the magnificent sovereignty of God. And then he calls them to love Christ and to love one another in a conflicted world at war with God But be anchored by Christ and just love the truth. I've said this statement over and over again, but it's when Jesus is your unquestioned Lord, you willingly walk worthily of his saving call. And this is what we see. And and if you you just look at at verse 1, Ephesians 4.1, Paul begins, I urge you, literally I implore you, I command you, The first word in Greek with heavy emphasis, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, is a personal, urgent appeal. It's a command from someone in authority over them. And he's saying, God is saying this, live your life, live your life in a manner worthy of the calling that God has called you with. Live your life equivalent to, 
or appropriate to or what goes with this calling to salvation. All of you are walking somewhere. Walking means living. All of you are living somehow and you're engaged in all sorts of pursuits and all sorts of decisions and all sorts of of actions and all sorts of, of, of directions. And what what God is saying to us is you live with that irrevocable, Godward, eternal, holy, hopeful call of God that he summoned you to faith in Christ, Christian, and you were called to believe. If you're not a Christian, it's, it's the idea of hearing the gospel, hearing the good news about Jesus, how he took our place at the cross. He, he died in our place for our sins. He shed his blood. He was buried, he died, was buried, rose on the third day according to the scriptures. And that you need to hear that good news and then turn from your sins, repent, and believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust in Jesus, rely on Jesus. If you haven't done that, you need to do that. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. And what the Christian is being told to do is now you live equal to that calling. Like the pictures should match up. What does it look like? What does it look like? It looks like all humility and gentleness. Last time we looked at humility, this low thinking that you esteem yourself small, that you actually know God's power and might, therefore you realize it's his power and ability by which I live. And so we looked at that, and it's like being, like being beggars on a cold street, looking into a, into a shop front, a storefront with these uh, you know, warm goodies in, in the case. And we're just saying, I want to be like that. We looked at, at Mary's humility, how she considered him, herself unworthy of God's grace, that, that she accepted suffering in her life as a blessing, not an ill-timed punishment. That she allowed her reputation to mean nothing, and Jesus is everything. That she believed the word of God. She believed the promises of God in the word of God. And, and we want to aspire to that. And as we continue to look and consider the incarnation, I want us to to really consider uh, Joseph's gentleness, the model of gentleness. And you can think of it this way. If if humility recognizes God's power, then gentleness is power under control, such that you continually recognize God's power and not yours. Verse 2 says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So we need to define gentleness. What is it? What does it mean? And then understand it. The world interprets gentleness or meekness as being a coward or as being timid or as not having much strength. But the Bible uh, is not telling us that. The Bible is telling us that it is, it is not vengeful or bitter or unforgiving. That, that gentleness is this, this willing submission to God and others without that rebel, vengeful spirit. And the Greek word translated gentleness it was used of, of a soothing medicine that you would put on a wound. It was used of a cool breeze on a hot day. Who doesn't like that? 
that was used of a horse that, that had been tamed, a horse broken and tamed, whose energy now could be, could be used in a helpful way, not a harmful way. It describes a tender-hearted person. That gentleness is power under control. Where we live in Orange, there are a lot of horses riding by our house almost every day, and I love horses, and, and they're, they're tamed. They're not running wild. They're not wreaking havoc on you know, the neighborhood. Uh, and the tamed horse, uh, you like the tamed horse because it doesn't hurt you. Uh, it has the same strength as a wild horse, but the power is under control. So the horse is submissive, not reckless. The horse is not destroyed in that training, but the natural tendencies are tempered. And when you could be described as a, as a gentle person, the idea is that there's a consideration about your life, like you consider others, that there's a meekness. And, and here's how it's defined. It's an attitude. It starts with an attitude. And it's an attitude, as one person put it, expressed in patient submissiveness to offense, free from malice or the desire for revenge. How many times do you want to you know, exact revenge on someone? Well, God has always commended gentleness. Psalm 25 says he leads the gentle and teaches them because they're teachable. Psalm 37 says he bestows on the gentle abundance of peace. See, the person who's not gentle doesn't have peace. Psalm 149 says he gives the gentle deliverance. So the strength under control that is not harsh in heart or deed is blessed by God. We read in Proverbs, a gentle answer turns away wrath. We read in Galatians 5 that gentleness is the fruit of the Spirit, the proof that a believer is, a professing believer is actually a believer. That is a, a, a virtue precious to God, as Peter puts it. It's important to working together with harmony. So in, in difficulties even, Galatians 6.1 says gentleness is required. It's essential to restore a sinning brother or sister, strongly guiding them in the right way. The gentleness. But what happens is harshness and anger take over too often. And anger damages relationships, and harshness just intensifies problems. I mean, think of it. Some of you are walking around with relational shrapnel in you, some real and some imagined, and all these hurts. And gentleness is this heart attitude. It starts inside, and it can be observed. What fills your heart is going to appear. Now, gentleness is not valued in the world, but God highly values it. It's crucial to your godliness. I think of, of King David, and in 1 Samuel 24, Saul is trying to destroy him, and over and over again, he's trying to kill him, and David kept telling his men, we're not going to exact retribution on this man. Um, we're not going to attack him. We're not going to try to get even. Gentleness is necessary for leadership. It says that the elders should not be violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. That we are to correct opponents with gentleness. Gentleness is necessary for your wisdom. 
In James chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. It goes on in verse 17 to say the wisdom from above, the wisdom from God, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. The gentleness isn't weakness, it's strength under control. Jesus commended gentleness in the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, uh, the gentle, the meek, are blessed. Now, we all know you can look gentle. All of you look gentle right now. But you can be harsh. And simmering anger is not gentle. Picture the, the quiet pot on a stove about to boil over. Jonathan Edwards called gentleness the Christian spirit. He said, all who are truly godly are real disciples of Christ and have a gentle spirit in them. Gentleness characterized Christ's relationship to his people. In Matthew 11, he says, I am humble and gentle in heart. Paul told the Corinthians, I appeal to you by the meekness, the, the gentleness of, of Christ. Like, copy that. Want to copy something? Copy, copy the gentleness of Christ. Defined gentleness is a heart attitude that shows in your actions. Strength under control, a a tempered, tame spirit. Now gentleness illustrated. I'm going to illustrate it with Joseph. I want you to observe Joseph's gentleness and its fruit. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses 18 to 25. I want you to be able to see clearly without fog and so that we would aspire to gentleness. Matthew chapter 1, and we'll pick it up at verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. It was discovered. You're engaged to be married. The custom then in the year between the engagement and the actual marriage, uh, the bride and groom did not spend a lot of time together. They may not have known each other very well. And the shock that Joseph absorbed, finding Mary pregnant, was extremely severe. I mean, put yourself in his sandals for a moment. It's not the mood that you have when you're putting up a nativity scene or Christmas lights. His worst fear was realized. He would have felt betrayed. Uh, His trust was broken. There's no question about what the phrase before they came together means. They were betrothed, but not yet married. Before they had united sexually, Mary was found pregnant. Now think of that moment when your world inverts and everything is upside down. This is Joseph. And and what he does is he thinks about it. And he comes to the same conclusion anyone would. He assumed that Mary had been unfaithful. And so his decision is no surprise. He is going to break the engagement quietly. Now he had 
jump to the wrong conclusion. He did not know yet the crucial truth that we see in verse 18 from the Holy Spirit. A miracle. The angel says it. The pregnancy was of God. The Holy Spirit brought this seemingly impossible thing about, and it's this completely unexpected miracle that came to pass. Over in Luke's gospel, the angel Gabriel announces the future birth of Christ to Mary, says to her, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call him Jesus. And then her answer, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel explains. And Luke and Matthew repeat to make sure you get the point. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Key words, overshadow you. Almost exact wording of Genesis 1 verse 2, that before creation, the Spirit of God was hovering over or overshadowing the waters. And the angel is saying, this will be no ordinary son. This son comes by the Spirit, you know, by the power of God who created the world. The angel says, the, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is Yahweh becomes man. As one writer put it, our God contract, contracted in a span incomprehensibly made man. According to the laws of nature, this is uh, impossible. The virgin birth is impossible according to the laws of nature, just as creation was. And these are like impossible odds. This is, this is more than million to one. This is not going to happen unless God does something. The power of God, the Holy Spirit, who came over the waters when, when God spoke words that led to the creation of the world. The miracle of creation. And when he spoke his word, he brought the whole world forth. And now would bring forth this child. He created the universe out of nothing. You know, there's a lot of people that will say, I believe Jesus is God. They'll say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That he rose from the dead. He paid for my sins at the cross. But they cannot believe the virgin birth. They say it's impossible. It's only impossible if God didn't exist. He intervenes in his creation to do what is ordinarily impossible, and Mary believed it. And now the news hits Joseph. His life, his faith, his future would be severely tested. And we don't know how Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant. But imagine the difficult conversations. Verse 19 tells us, And her husband Joseph, being a, a just man, literally righteous man, he wasn't just, oh, oh, Joseph's a nice guy. You know, Grace Church has a lot of nice guys. It's not like, oh, uh, Joseph was a really good guy. You know, stand-up guy. No, he was righteous. And, and this says he was righteous before he heard about the birth of Jesus Christ. And it says that he was unwilling to put her to shame, and he resolved to divorce her quietly. Most likely, Mary had told him about the angel's visit, that the baby was from the Holy Spirit, 
that the child would be the true and better David. But Joseph's not buying it. Joseph isn't buying it. So he's about to break the betrothal. It was the worst breakup that could be happened in those days. There's no bigger breakup that could happen than breaking a betrothal. Two choices you would have in those days if your betrothed bride committed adultery. The first choice was the most drastic but the most popular, public shaming. You bring her before the religious authorities, forfeiting the dowry paid to the father and possibly her death by stoning. You picture Jesus rescuing the adulterous woman from public execution. Second choice was a private divorce. Still very embarrassing and questions from family and friends and others, but it protected Mary more. Joseph was a righteous man. What did it mean? Righteous man, it means he followed God's law. That he was committed to following God's law. That what you would do then in that situation is divorce the unfaithful spouse, do it in the most selfless, compassionate, and gentle way. He was a faithful follower of God who would do right when it cost him. And here, this is even proving that he would be a, a faithful steward of the Son of God, whom he would raise. Verse 20 tells us, but as he considered these things, he's considering what's going on, and he's, he, what you'll notice is he didn't have a harsh or a rash decision. There's remarkable self-control after seeing life crash and burn. And he decides on a solution. And God says no go on, on the solution, no joy on that. God sends a heavenly messenger, uh, just as the angel had visited Mary. Now God speaks to him. And by the way, real quick here, if, if some of you uh, had a dream last night and you're puzzled about it, and you're not even thinking about the sermon right now because you're, you're wondering, what did my dream mean? Maybe it meant you ate something really spicy last night. Maybe it meant that you have a lot on your mind. But it is not a normative thing for God to be speaking to you through dreams or through uh, words and voices you hear as you're driving in your car. Unless, of course, you are listening to your Bible on, in, you know, audibly. The God's uh, way of speaking to us today is by his Spirit, through his word. But here he's speaking directly to Joseph. He sends his angel to do it. And the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David. Very crucial. He addresses him as son of David. Only other New Testament character that is called son of David is Jesus. It's a title of authority. He's being reminded, you have a royal lineage. He's prepping him for what he's about to hear. Matthew, Matthew says in his gospel, Jesus was the rightful son of David. Paul affirmed it to the Romans, Romans 1.3. Jesus Christ, the son of David, according to the flesh. Son of David. Joseph is being reminded of his ancestry. Of, of, he's, in, he's of the people of God. He's in the messianic line. This is not insignificant. He needs to be reminded in that moment. And just like, by the way, Ephesians is reminding us all the time as you read about God's glorious grace. Hey, Christian, you are in Christ. And you get to verse 1 of chapter 4, and it says, now live it. You're in Christ? Live that. You, you say you're a Christian? 
prove it. So the angel reminds him who he is and then says, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This is not new information here, okay? He's probably heard this already, but he's hearing it from God directly. He will save his people from their sins. Mary, chosen by God as mother of Jesus. And the angel is reminding him of Scripture. And maybe, maybe Joseph's remembering. Maybe he's remembering Isaiah 7.14, where the Messiah would come from a young virgin. And so the angel says, and this is what we we're told, this, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God has kept his promise to send a redeemer, the deliverer, the Messiah, Emmanuel, serpent slayer, virgin born, free from the curse, the second Adam, fulfilling what the first did not, defeating sin and death at the cross, to save his people from their sins, restoring what sin ruined. And so, this authoritative, life-altering visit from an angel assures Joseph that this baby will not be an illegitimate outcome of sin, but will miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. The fullness of the time had come. Salvation history at pinnacle here. Holy moment. It's time to humbly bow before God and respond with gentle wisdom and obey. And this is what jo- Joseph did. His response was to obey. To trust God when humanly impossible. Joseph is gentle. Joseph carefully considered his options and came up with what he thought was the best solution. Some of you do that, right? You weigh all the options and you figure out this is the best solution. But I don't know how many times I have talked to Christians who will say, well, I know the Bible says this, but I'm doing that. I know the Bible says this, but I don't feel like that. Oh, I know the Bible says this, but you know what? I'm feeling really bad. I'm going to respond this way instead. I don't know how many times I've said to Christians, this is what the Bible says to do in this situation. And they say, no, we're not going to do it. Joseph is carefully considering his options. And yet, here's what happens. He allows God to override him. It's what you and I should be doing every day, by the way. Let God override your sinful tendencies and let God do what God will do through the person who is gently obeying the word of God. Joseph carefully considered his options and he allowed God's word to cancel his ideas, to override his ideas. When was the last time you let that happen? He obeyed the bare word of God. Verse 24, he woke up and did just as he was commanded. It was a command. By the way, you don't put up with the will of God. You don't put up with the word of God. Well, I guess I'll do it. No, you embrace it. You dial up Joseph, actively trusting in the sovereign God and and adhering to his holy word. He trusted the true God. He let himself be be directed by the word of God. He, He reacted based on the word of God. 
This inner life of faith came out publicly. It always does. What's in you comes out. Jesus said it. The mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. We, we yield to go our own way. He yielded. See, when the, when the word lands implanted on your heart such that you are changed by it and you receive it well, the results are astounding. Simply astounding. And Joseph cared deeply about obeying God. When, when, when he's spoken of as a righteous man, it literally is he's faithful to the law. So 40 days after Jesus was born, Joseph took Jesus to Jerusalem to dedicate him at the temple required by the law of Moses. He not only allowed himself to be overridden, he accepted the providential events. He accepted this hard providence, this, this providential uh, predicament. He wakes up and he does just as he was commanded. This, this devout son of David, committed to scripture, immediately obeyed, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. This immediate disobedience to an uncomfortable mission. How many times are we like Jonah? We run. Or let's, let's look for another way around this. Instead of doing exactly what the Bible tells us to do. You, you know, Joseph trusted the providence of God. Do you know what that is? Do you know what the providence of God is? Well, one illustration would be it's like a thousand piece puzzle, one piece at a time, and you don't have the pieces in your control. By the way, I'm the guy who, uh, in my family, if they're doing a thousand-piece puzzle, I like to take one piece and put it in my pocket. I've told you this before, I know. Some of you are like shaking your head. I'm that guy. Oh, I'm not that guy anymore because retribution happened after I did that. I stopped doing that. You show up at the end, it's like, ha ha, look at this. Boom, I found it. But you can't do that with God. You can't, do, you can't hide a puzzle piece in your pocket and show up at the, at the 11th hour and say, Ha-ha, I know better than God. Some of you are, you know, doing that just with all the puzzle pieces sitting on the table. What is providence? Providence is God in control of all things, orchestrating everything, allowing what comes to pass, sustaining and upholding all things by the word of his power, for his glory, for his honor, for the purpose of putting himself and all his, his wonderful attributes on greatest display. This is what God is doing. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 11, the answer is God work, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving, and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. Louis Burkhoff put it this way, the continued exercise of divine power as the creator preserves all his creatures is operative in all that comes to pass in the world and directs all things to their appointed end. Well, he's got all the puzzle pieces and it's going to work out perfectly according to God's plan. In fact, when you understand providence, it makes sense of life. You see how things fit together. You trust God to work it all together for good. And you can get quite good at noticing 
We peek into the heart of Joseph, the wine of David, believer in the Messiah, truster of God, accepting providence. And it begets gentleness. It eliminates harshness. This tendency we have to react and not think before we speak or act. Jerry Bridges said this, gentleness is the strength of being tender. Gentleness is needed because the human personality is valuable but fragile and must be handled with care. It's like when you're carrying a flat of eggs through the store and your hands are all full. And here is Joseph, carefully considering how to best respond in honor of God, and he allows the word of God, he allows new information to override his ideas. He knows he doesn't determine anything. You don't determine anything. God sovereignly and providentially orchestrates. As Amy Carmichael put it, in acceptance lieth peace. And so you obey the bare word of God and accept uh, the providential even predicaments uh, that you find yourself in. And Joseph, he didn't stop there. He then took action for good. He acted on God's word. And he took calculated, obedient action for God's glory and to bless others. And he did it with gentleness, this strength under control. Uh, he initiated good. He, you know when you want to deliberately bless someone and you do it? And what did he do? He protected and provided for Mary and for Jesus. Following Caesar's edict, he, Joseph takes Mary to be counted in the census in Bethlehem where his ancestors were from. After Christ's birth, Herod tries to kill Jesus. God commands Joseph to take Jesus and Mary to Egypt. There is no hesitation. He immediately obeys. After Herod dies, an angel appears to Joseph, commands him to return to Israel. He does. It's this pattern of obedience. Jesus would be considered illegitimate all his life by unbelieving Jews. Joseph and Mary would be believed to have been scandalous before marriage all their life. And it's safe to assume that Joseph shielded Mary from many an insult and accusation. He loved his wife. He protected her. He shielded her. Protected her like, like, like Joe Gonzalez protected me from Ken Smith in the fourth grade. You see, you protect, you don't persecute fellow Christians. You should never enjoy hearing of someone else's misfortune. A gentle heart rejects harshness and retribution. And Joseph, Joseph obeyed, and it's seen in the most practical, self-sacrificing honor. 
He was not self-willed. It says that he, if you look at in Matthew 1, verse 25, he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. Literally, he kept Mary a virgin until Jesus was born. Self-control used by God to fulfill prophecy because it says the virgin shall conceive and the virgin shall bear a son. And, and this gentleness, this consideration, this meekness towards Mary just speaks volumes. That she had this hedge of protection, that she was under her husband's covering, that her husband loved the Lord, that, that, that Joseph allowed God to override him and obeyed the bare word of God accepted this providential predicament and acted for God's glory and their good. And isn't God so kind to bring that about? Isn't he so good to grant you repentance and faith that you could be gentle to counter your, your natural inclination to harshness? You could accept the situation as a blessing, not an unfortunate inconvenience. This is what Joseph did. He was gentle in heart. The ordinary man, used by God. He had righteous character. He had utmost high-level integrity, immediate obedience. He gave up his reputation. He, he was a spiritual leader. He suffered loss. For the suffering servant. He suffered shame and reproach. And he did it graciously. He did it gently. He, he embraced the reproach of Christ. Hebrews 11.26 tells us of Moses. That he considered the reproach of Christ. The, the, the rebuke, the heat that he would suffer for obedience to God. To be greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. For he looked ahead to a reward. He looked ahead to what God had promised. Paul told the Corinthians, For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And here's Joseph, you know, barely mentioned in Scripture, forgotten in church history, but remembered as a faithful, gentle servant of Jesus. He was gentle in heart like Jesus. Jesus who took the form of a servant. Jesus who was esteemed stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. Who lived Isaiah 53 like one from whom we hide our faces. It couldn't have been lost on Joseph. He watched it play out from the get-go. The cradle's weight too much for a depraved human to bear and to carry, and Joseph needed Jesus. Joseph needed Jesus. B.B. Warfield said this, the glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God or a deified man, but a true God-man, one who is all that God is, and at the same time, all that man is. And on his mighty arm, we can rest. And on his human sympathy, we can appeal. 
And Joseph had waited for him. Joseph would be thought an immoral fool for the rest of his life. For walking the path that God ordained for him. And yet, I think it could be safely said that in the most cosmic of ways, even as Joseph protected pre-born Jesus and, and, and infant Jesus, Jesus went with Joseph. Imagine walking into the city. You, your wife, and your young child. And every eye is on you and on them. And they are thinking horribly of you. And, and you know the truth. And it is enough. Because truth incarnate walks with you. And it is enough for you to have Jesus and Scripture. To have Christ and the Word of God. Or maybe you still haven't found what you're looking for. You can come to Christ who satisfies. Is it enough? Is it enough to have Jesus and, and Scripture? Martin Luther said, if, if Christ had arrived with trumpets and lain in a cradle of gold, his birth would not be a comfort to me. Rather, he lay in the lap of a poor maiden of little significance in the eyes of the world. Now I can come to him. And Joseph, this obedience, this gentle obedience, cost him his reputation. In this honor-shame society that he lived in, everyone would know he would be publicly shamed, excluded, rejected, considered trash. But he let the gentleness of Jesus define him. Could you do that? Jesus despised and rejected of men. Jesus, as the songwriter put it, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Bought my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. You get to gentleness and it's, it's overlooked. You're not going to get a lot of kudos for gentleness. It'll be missed, it'll be ignored but not by God, not by God. He is pleased with it. I think there's something so commendable about Joseph. He embodied gentleness, strength under control. If you, if you would willingly walk worthily, embody gentleness, aspire to it. The gentleness filters impurities out. Just let God whittle away the harshness. Think before you speak. Consider your actions. Let the word of God redirect you. Go along with God. Be lovingly compliant. See, the gentle, when you're gentle, you don't think you know better than everybody else. You know God knows best. And you keep allowing your mind to be overridden by Christ and his word. You accept providence of God and, and then, then you take, you don't stop there, you take calculated action to bless. The gentle don't overreact, they obediently act. 
And so here, here, here's Joseph, you know, in Scripture, relatively obscure. A template for us, I think. We insert ourselves into the story. How many times have you heard, put yourself, you know, in the Christmas story, or put yourself in God's story? No, just read it. Believe it. Act upon it. You're not in the story. You're not. You're not in the Bible. But we selfishly insert ourselves, and we're not the point. Jesus is. Copy Joseph. Learn from him. Well, what if we get too big for our britches? We're too loud for the room. We, we lack self-awareness. We're, our mic is too hot. And what did Jesus say? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the gentle. They shall inherit the earth because everyone's not going to run away from them. <laughs> they reflect God. They have strength under control. You might, get cru- you might be gentle and be crushed by life. But you look to Christ. You're like the Energizer Bunny. You just keep going. <laughs> You're like a Timex watch, you know, takes a licking and keeps on ticking. You're like Rocky Balboa, you just keep getting up. You know you're weak, you know God's strong, and you have a tender heart that breaks for the downtrodden and the oppressed and the misunderstood. That's the gentle. The gentle stays strong and steady even in strong winds because they're strengthened by the one who made the winds. I'm going to read you a long quote because I like it. A.W. Tozier, in The Pursuit of God, spoke of the meek man, the gentle man. Here's what he said. The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. He may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. The world will never see him as God sees him, and he has stopped caring. He rests content to allow God to place his own values and to wait for the day when everything will get its own price tag and real worth will come into its own. The old struggle to defend himself is over. He has found the peace which meekness brings. Tell me, can you, ha- can you handle this? The cost-benefit analysis of gentleness. It will cost you, but it's worth it. Think about why Joseph was willing to go through all of that. Faith makes you do funny things. Joseph carefully considered his options. He he allowed God's word to cancel and override his ideas. He he accepted the providential predicament, and and he, he acted, calculated, obedient action to bless others because that's what the gentle do. We don't know what happened to Joseph. Some people say, oh, he was really old when he married Mary. He died young. We don't know if he was old or young when he died. But, by the, but after the visit by Jesus to the temple at age 12, he doesn't appear again in Scripture. And we're not really looking around for him either. He died. We don't know when. I found some words written around A.D. 300 about Joseph. St. Joseph, meek and mild, embraced the newborn child, then knelt upon the sod, The old man, well aware that deity laid there, adored the child as God. You know, he is remembered as a faithful, gentle servant because he reflected Christ, the promised deliverer due to sin. And Jesus, who was born in obscurity and bore our shame. Jesus, who said, I am humble and gentle in heart. As a songwriter 
put it, in my place condemned to die, to the grave destined to fly. In perfect time he came to earth so I could have the second birth. We preach not one but two advents of Christ. The last far more glorious. The first was gentle. The second, he will return with earth-shaking sovereign power. And I think a good idea until he comes is to get a handle on, on humility and gentleness. And two, allow God to override you and accept providential events and act for the good of others. And let the gentleness of Jesus soothe your soul. Lord, we pray that you would let gentleness, the the fruit of your spirit at work in our lives, strength under control, govern us in such a way that we please you and help others. That's our prayer. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We come to the come to the table. Come to the table of the Lord where we remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. So here we are in this season where we are remembering Jesus coming to earth to save sinners. And now at this table, it's like all of his earthly ministry just truncated right to this, like remember Christmas, remember Easter. All at one time when you come to the table. As often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Paul said, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul said, among whom I am the worst. And you come to the table and you remember the sins for which Christ died. Your sins. You don't remember other people's sins right this moment. You remember your sins that condemned you to hell. And then you remember how God opened your heart to the gospel. If you're not a Christian today, you can't do that, can you? This is for the Lord's people. Even if you're not a believer today, believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved. Trust your soul upon him. Confess your sins. Turn from them and turn to Christ. He will not cast you out. Come to the table, and we are to do this in a worthy manner talking about walking worthy. It says, if you eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, you are guilty of the body and blood of Jesus. What does that mean? It means not you take it not in accordance with its worth. If you take it harboring sin in your heart towards someone else, you take it with unrepentant sin, you take it with, with I don't really care about this, but I'm going to do it because it looks good or it, I, I, need, I need a snack or I, I, I want to look like a Christian. Don't do it. Take it seriously. It says, in accordance with its worth, that you say, I am a sinner lost apart from Christ, and Jesus opened my heart to the gospel message, and I believe this message, and I'm staking my life upon it, and I want my life to reflect it. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. And then he instructed his people, Do it in remembrance of me. He took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
and we're remembering Jesus, we're remembering what he did, we're remembering that we're lost without him, we're remembering that he's coming back, and we're remembering his promises are true. Drink of it, all of you. Lord God, we are always humbled when we think of what you have done at the cross. Keep us humbled, Lord. Keep us gentle in heart. As often as we do this, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes. Waiting for him to come again. Until that day, Lord, help us to walk worthy of your call. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you join uh, and stand if you can as we close by singing the first verse and chorus of His Mercy is More. go we have a few announcements next Sunday is a big day we have a local outreach family party here at the church from 3:30 to 7 and um, if you've never done one of these outreaches in the, in the local neighborhoods come out and join us to help and connect with our neighbors uh, that's next Sunday we're also joining at Kindred together been invited by that church to be a part of their Christmas concert with Matt Papa at 2 p.m. next Sunday. So go to the concert, then come help here. And Christmas Eve on the plaza, 4 p.m. And a lot of missions opportunities right now. Ashley Ortlip will be going to South Africa January 9th, be praying for her. Uh, Homes of Hope outreach to Tijuana, February 16 to 18. And short-term trip to Oaxaca. We're just starting to announce it today. Uh, Oaxaca, Mexico, July 2024. You can find all uh, info out there uh, on the missions table on the plaza. So we're going to close now with 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And Lord God, we praise you. We thank you even for the way you soften our hearts. May we, may we live um, trusting in you uh, this week. And for what you provide, we wait. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, with me in the calm, with me.